Welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. The podcast is currently on more or less hold to accommodate the recordings for the daily community meetup. During this crazy time, I'm having daily meetings online via Zoom where we can all join and see each other on video and there's special guests. And so I thought I would post the replays here on the podcast so those who can't listen live can listen later. So here we go, continuing on with the daily community meetups. If you'd like to join, all you have to do is go to swimbikemom.com forward slash meet, M-E-E-T, swimbikemom.com forward slash meet, and you can join us any day of the week, 12 noon Eastern during the week, and weekends I'm doing 8 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and Sunday. So I hope you all enjoy this episode of the Daily Community Meeting. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hi, Dr. Miller. Hello, Meredith. How are you? I am doing all right. How are you? I am good. I am good. I am so grateful you're here. I, I shared and overshared this event with everyone because I was so excited. So um, I know we had booked the podcast a while back and um, I thought it would be great for everyone to be able to see you. So much gratitude for you for being here. Yeah. So um, I thought it would be interesting to, to start today by talking about how when I was a teenager, <laughs> I had a tremendous fear of death. And um, I read a lot of Sylvia Plath and I wore, you know, black combat boots and I, I, I loved her Lady Lazarus poem. Like I eat men with air. I have this red hair and I dyed my hair red. And I all, but like when I had to go to a funeral or I had to be presented with the idea of dying or death, I was very like terrified of it. And like a lot of people are, of course, but um, four years ago, I was about 12 weeks sober. So I'm four years sober now, but I just quit drinking. And I get a call from my mom that my grandmother had taken a fall and she was in the hospital. And the message was basically, you know, come now. And my mom and I were with my grandmother as she exited life. And I owe so much gratitude to her for giving me that gift. And I know that sounds so weird, but I learned so much sitting with her at the end of her life. Um, and I was so grateful that for that moment, my mom, she mentions it too. And so then I saw your Ted talk and, um, been following you and I've read your book and I thought this is just something that no one talks about, (laughs) not enough. And, um, so I'm just honored that you're here and I have lots of notes. I took, I don't usually take this many notes. I like to free flow, but I (laughs) took lots of notes and um, I'm over-prepared. So I may be off because I'm over-prepared. So, um, but thank you. Thank you again. Thank you again. So let's start, let's start quickly with your story. And I know you've told it a million times, but just so people kind of know where you came from and why you decided to become a doctor. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you. I, I, I really, um, it's so important that on this big subject, uh, it, it, it stays abstract unless people are willing to get a little personal. So I really, I really appreciate you sharing your story a little bit there about your time with your grandmother and your own feelings about the whole subject. So thank you. Um, um, so for me, yeah, I, when I was a sophomore in college, screwing around, this was 1990. Um, fall of 1990. I had just gotten back from Thanksgiving break and friends and I were just horsing around and we climbed up on top of a park commuter train that runs on campus. Um, it was just sitting there. It was after hours. We climbed it like you climb a tree and I had a metal watch on um, and the power, this is New Jersey and the power lines run overhead uh, above the train. Excuse me. And so when I got up on top of the train and stood up, I had a metal watch on and the electricity arc to the watch and that was it. So I got electrical burns, lost my 
arm below the elbow where the watch was and then um, both legs below the knee. Uh, and that was it. It was just basically a, you know, a fluke freak kind of accident, but I was 19 at the time and it was, um, I mean, gosh, we could talk about this for hours. There were all sorts of things that flowed from that experience. But right. bottom line for our conversation here, what it really did, among other things for me, is it really woke me up to my own mortality. And it really woke me up to just how connected we are um, and how mutable and changeable we are and how, um, and how hard that can be, but also how beautiful that can be. So anyway, there's much to say. But that was my entree that took me into medicine and took me into this kind of work. Yeah, because you were so close to death. Yeah, that was a big piece of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so you that happened to you, and you walked around and said, oh, what? why me? Why did this happen to me? You became a total victim, right? <laughs> no, I mean, how, was that easy? I mean, was what, what was your mindset like? I mean, well, that, that's not the first go-to. No, like, I mean, yeah. it was, there were, there were, you know, it took years, right? I mean, I, there were, it, it, and it's not linear, you know, some days I was just a basket case and, and very, and filled with self-pity. And the next day I, for whatever reason, was feeling sort of strong and in good humor and helping other people around me be comfortable. Um, I don't know, it was just all over the place, but you could feel there was grief to it, you know, kind of coming to terms with what I had lost. But thanks to a lot of support that I had, I, I, it wasn't all that hard, really, in retrospect. At the time, it was brutal. But looking back, there was a sweet arc to sort of grieving what I was losing and then becoming aware of all that I still had. And yeah. the two go together very nicely. And I needed to say, I needed to be sad. I needed to miss the things I was losing. That was an important piece of it. I didn't just jump right to some sort of levity and, oh, I got this. <laughs> I needed to roll around in the dirt. I needed to be lost. And I was for a while, but I had a lot of support around me, people helping me see the shore. And yeah. within a couple of years, I was much more aware of all that I still had versus what I had lost. Yeah. Yeah. In your book. So um, everyone, the book is a beginner's guide to the end. When you talk about your story, I, um, I wrote down this quote that you wrote, I needed people to see that I wasn't afraid so that I wouldn't be. I learned not to constantly compare my new body to my old body or mm -hmm. to other people's. Instead, I could engage, and I love this, in the creative process of making my way through the day. Mm -hmm. I got close enough to see something of death and come back from the ledge only to realize that it's in and around us all the time. And now I see this truth in my patients looking to change and be themselves all at once. And so I thought that was so beautiful because the creative process of making your way through the day, I'm sure it, it truly did become a creative process. It did, it did. And, and it became a creative process, but it's probably more true to say, Meredith, that it was revealed as always having been a creative process. It's not like, it's like what this, this experience, of course, changed the architecture of my body, but that was actually a bit player in all this. What it really did was tweak how I saw myself in the world and how I saw the world in general and how I, how I became aware of change and, and, and inevitability of change. And in other words, I was still looking at very much the same world in a lot of ways. I was just now looking at it differently or with a bigger lens. Um, right. And so I do feel that all of us, any of us, is engaged in a creative act just making our way through day. That it's filled with improvisation and all sorts of things we didn't plan for. We don't, call, we don't give ourselves a credit of being creative for making our way through the day. But I, I just think it just genuinely is for all of us, anybody. Yeah. That's such a great way to look at it. it. It takes a lot of pressure off too. It's, it's instead of having this perfectionistic tendency, it's like, well, how can I be creative today and not yeah. make a total mess? Yeah. Yeah. It's like an agility that comes with this. Like, you, you know, once you realize the ground, once the ground's pulled out from underneath you, you know, you find your balance internally uh, in some ways. You find some balance through agility because things are moving all the time. And what you wake up to is whether you're amputated or not, the ground is moving underneath you all the time. I mean, it seems like what's going on with us right now in the world with COVID is exposing. We may have thought the ground was solid underneath us, 
but that's only ever been temporary or an illusion, you know, at best. And it's just being revealed as shifty. Yeah. It's always been so, I think, if you ask me. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, another part in your book that really struck me, I think it's in the first chapter, is you, you wrote, there's nothing wrong with you for dying. Yeah. And I thought, wow, is that part of our thought process? Like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry I'm dying. I'm sorry that this is happening to you through me, you know, and I thought that was such an interesting, interesting start. Um, because like, we, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about our plans for end of life. I'm a recovering attorney as well. So I did, I did a lot of estate work. I worked in a teeny tiny town and, um, or with a lot of, with an aging population and we did a lot of estate work. And so, um, but, but no one talked about it. They didn't talk about it until it was late or the planning needed to have been done 10 years ago. And, and so I, I do encourage anyone to get Dr. Miller's book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. It, it was so comprehensive and so, so fantastic. But the one thing that really stuck out to me, as you said, only 10 to 20% of us die without some kind of warning. Yeah. Yeah. I think, sorry, did I just cut you off, Meredith? Were you about no, to no, 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 go ahead. No. no. Well, yeah, a couple of thoughts to tie in those two statements. You know, yeah, I think it is really important. I think it's the first, I think it's the first sentence of the book that there's nothing wrong with you for dying. Because, right, we don't talk about it much. And when we do, it tends to be with pretty fight, frightful terminology filled with warring analogies. We're going to go to battle and all this stuff. And, you know, hey, if those, that language suits you, fine. But very often because there's not a more robust and fuller conversation, we just have this sort of gnarly battle mentality and it's a war that we all know we're going to lose. And so when we, our language, you know, even if we don't feel, even if we don't feel like anything's wrong with us for dying, the world sort of seems to be telling us that there is like right. we didn't, we had negative thoughts or we didn't eat enough vegetables or we didn't, we should have jogged more or, Whatever it is, we, the implications of how we do talk about it suggest that you're a loser for dying. Right. right. You didn't fight hard enough. Right, right. You succumbed to illness or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's very hard to escape the, the sort of vibe around that language. And that's why I think it's so important to, to, to normalize this right out of the shoots and get, try to get the shame out of the picture. Of course, there's sorrow, sadness, there's all sorts of stuff, but we don't need to add shame to the mix. We don't need to feel bad for feeling bad um, is the way I feel about it. So anyway, that's, that's one. I think there's a, that's a huge, there's a lot to say about that and why a book like this seems to be important because while this is a fundamental, essential part of being human, we've sort of lost touch with it. It's, it's how necessary it is. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. It's That's, just not a conversation we have. And, and I started reading um, a lot of stoicism in the last year. And, and one of the big tenets of stoicism is like, you're going to die. Yeah. Hello, yep. accept it. And, and I thought the first time I listened to Ryan Holiday on a podcast and he was talking, it's like memento mori, I think is the Latin term. I yeah. thought, oh, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't like this conversation. I don't like this, this thought okay. of mortality. Um, but the more I think about it, when, when you, step into, yeah, we're, we're going to die. And that's part of living. And mm -hmm. because I know I'm going to die one day, how can I be present today? How can I be kinder? And I know we were supposed to book, um, we were supposed to talk on the podcast last month and my daughter wasn't feeling well because she was pre-appendicitis. And I had just texted mm -hmm. you and I said, Hey, I know this is a dumb thing and maybe we'll never reschedule it, but I got to be with my girl today. And you texted me back and you were like, Hey, you're, you're doing the right thing. And I'm like, I yeah. figured you would understand that of all the, <laughs> of yeah. all the guests. Yeah. But um, with that in mind that, that we are all going to experience this at some point, one of the things that you really focus on is to, is for us to be mindful of our goals of care toward yeah. the end. And, and I think this is a really important thing to discuss. So if you'd like yep. to touch on that. Yeah, it is. So, um, so goals of care is a phrase that you might, you might hear in medicine more and more. It's sort of a, it's, it's not my phrase. In other words, just to say, it, there is a thing, especially in palliative medicine, we refer to our goals of care. It's sort of, it's a, it's, it's a way to contextualize your life 
so that you can make good decisions for yourself. So it comes up in healthcare a lot around treatment decisions. Invariably, like, like you had indicated a minute ago, Meredith, most of us are gonna die from chronic illness. In other words, we're gonna know, we're gonna be given a diagnosis months or years in advance of it killing us. So we're gonna have some sense of, this, of, the re, of how we'll die well in advance. And so another reason why it makes sense to have some, to forge some sort of relationship with your own death, because you're gonna have, the idea like back in the day, the idea like meet a lot of people who, who really believe that the death that's coming for them is, you know, they're basically gonna be great, and then they're gonna go to sleep and never wake up. Or they're gonna, I hear this a lot, they're gonna drop dead on the tennis court, like doing what they love, they're gonna be <laughs> totally alive and then totally dead. That doesn't really usually go that way. So it, it, it begs the, hence the need to have some sort of relationship with this thing that you got to live with, this illness, this chronic unfixable thing you got to live with. So that, that's, an, I think, why that's so important is that's the bulk of us are going to have some experience with chronic illness. So, so given that, chronic illness just means it's something you can't fix. It doesn't go away. You got to live with it. So, um, so how to live with it becomes a question. How do you accommodate illness? How do you accommodate death in your life so that these events don't feel like these foreign invaders robbing you of life? They're part of you. So, so goals of care is a way to, to make sense of your situation, to bring it back to what's important to you now so that you can make good decisions for yourself. The norm in healthcare in medicine is, you know, it used to be that there weren't that many things to try. And I think back in the day, it made sense to just say, well, I'm going to give, I'll try anything the doctor offers. And, you know, cause it's two or three things. And when those stop working, then I'll accept death and then I'll get, I'll put my affairs in order. And it's, you know, that may have made sense at one point if it ever did, but now there, there's no shortage of things that your doctor can try. So if you're waiting for that list to run out before you dare to accept that you're going to die, you're in, don't, don't do that because there's not gonna, you're not going to run out of things to try. And at some point, actually, you're going to be offered things to try that probably won't serve you. Right. And so you, gotta have, you have to be much more active in your care. So how do you assert yourself in all this process? Well, you, you assert yourself by becoming known to your doctor. And, you know, so I, for me, BJ, what might be important for me is, you know, when it comes time, you know, I don't mind hospitals, but I know I really don't want to die in a hospital. You know, I know I want to be around friends and family. I know I want to be comfortable, you know, so those goals, those goals become important around which to make decisions. I know if that's my goal, then I'm probably not going to try that last ditch treatment that's going to have me in the hospital. I know I'm probably not going to choose to be on a ventilator when I'm dealing with multiple chronic illnesses and things like that. So by asserting who you are, you Meredith, not generic person X, what you care about, if you put that into the mix, it has a way of organizing decisions that need to be made. Because if you don't do that, you'll fall down these default pathways in medicine. And the default pathways tend to be more gear, more stuff, intubation, more machines, and we can prop up the body practically indefinitely. So you have to actively say no to that if that's not what you want. Does right. That make and sense? Also, yeah, it totally does. And when I listened to your TED talk, you had mentioned you, there, you had a chronic patient, I guess she had ALS and she, she wanted to start smoking at the end. And I thought, yeah. and that was, so I was, of course, when I was reading Sylvia Plath, I was smoking cigarettes and all that. So, <laughs> but I quit smoking years ago and I've always said, you know, if I have a good life around 85, I'm going to start drinking and smoking again, you know? And, and I thought about that, you know, when I was reading your book, yeah, you know, at the end of life, like, how do you want to be, you know, you want to feel the smoke in your lungs because you don't know how much longer you have with that. And, and that's such a foreign concept for us to think about that long term, yeah. um, what we would want, but what a gift death can be if you think about it along the way. And how many people are totally uncomfortable, like show of hands talking about this? Are people like, oh no, anyone? No, y'all are all so very very um, forward thinking because you're my friends. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I, I love I loved that. Um, and one of the things that you, you talk about too is the healthcare system was designed, and I have a, a bunch of 
friends in medicine who say this too, the healthcare system was designed with diseases, not people at its core. And that um, we ask too much of our hospitals and our healthcare. Yeah. I mean, medicine, I love medicine. It saved my life. I love being a doctor, blah, blah, blah. But it can't and nothing's impossible and where I did my uh, internship in Milwaukee at the Medical College of Wisconsin the Freighter Hospital was one of the main hospitals we rotated through their tagline was where miracles happen every day and I hated that I mean I, I hated walking in that building I can't I'm not a miracle worker I can apply some science but miracles not my it's not my station and that kind of expectation that we can do anything you know is just it's I, I get why I understand there's there's enough truth to it and I also understand the seduction of hope that goes with it but we want we kick the can down the road and we defer the inevitable moment where actually there's certain things we can't do you know and we don't we just keep kicking that down the road and then we end up extending our pain and complicating yeah. our pain so um but now I've forgotten, Meredith, did you ask a question? Was I? Uh, probably not. I usually just talk <laughs> and then go, yes. No, but the, the thought I was having was, you know, life, the, kind of the, the Tony Robbins concept of life is happening for us, not to us. Uh-huh. And if we wait the long, you know, stretch that, you know, everyone's going to be healed and we don't accept that life is happening for us, that we have some control over, you know, our wishes in the end, we can yeah. do certain things. I mean, then it's happening to us and it becomes this rapid panic and toward the end nothing is taken care of your your life's a mess your house is a mess your children are fighting um and and one of the amazing things in the book and here's me not having a question again um but one of the the things in the book you talk about is is ways to to manage this toward the end or even now like i'm 40 i i i'm a former lawyer who doesn't have a will in the state of massachusetts um you know, things like that. And I'm reading your book. I'm like, I know, BJ, I know, I gotta, I gotta get my will. I know, I know better than this. But um, part of part of accepting that we're going to die, and, and especially when we have a, an illness is is getting your affairs in order. And, and yeah. one of your main points was don't leave a mess. And I loved that chapter. So how about that? Dr. Miller, yeah. will you please talk about don't leave a mess? <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm also link us back to some you know, first of all, let me just also get this a little bit clear too. Like, yes, death is a part of life. And that is a central theme here. That is if we're interested in culture change in this country, I think this is one of the reveals that you can tell the U.S. is not a very old country, not a very developed society per se, because of our attitude toward aging and death. We treat it as this optional thing that happens if we don't try hard enough or something, you know, this piece of nature that we can push back on. Um, and I think what's waiting for us as a culture is if we dare to see death as part of life, not as the antithesis of life, then we'll stop being at war with ourselves, with our nature. And you don't have to love death. It's just, do you love life? And if you love life, death's a piece of it. I mean, that's the basic. I'm not, I'm not here to suggest that you need to just squeal with death and giggle with it and roll, skip down the street. I mean, that if you do, great. I'm just saying... You just have to, it, it just is. You can put an adjective to it if you want, but it just is. So that's, that's why I think we need to deal with it. And what's, what's, what's happily waiting for us on the other side of that, of that daring move of dealing with mortality is you start seeing what it does for you and it does teach you things. And chief among those things is I think it, it, it proves the point that life is precious. I mean, for me, this phrase, like what, what makes anything precious but that it ends? You know, how would you feel about life's specialness if it just went on indefinitely? I mean, we have, we, we, have, <laughs> we have movies and books devoted to that. It looks like vampires and zombies. It's like not, it's not a, it's not a happy state. Right. And so anyway, that's just sort of backdrop of ways to kind of get into the ball, get into the arena with the subject so that you can relate to it and deal with it so that that you can get around to these practical things too like at some point uh, a well-lived life at some point i see this with patients all the time and in myself too if you really want to die at some amount of peace you've got to begin somewhere along the way to see the power of life beyond yourself 
You know, that your ego, yourself is, is an amazing thing. It's important. But don't confuse yourself with everything. In other words, if you start investing yourself, if you start injecting your love or seeing yourself outside of yourself, because yourself is going to die. That's the part we know. The ego is going to die. But life's going to go on. There's life beyond yourself. And you can feel part of that. I mean, I encourage you to think about that. That's another reason to ruminate on this. You'll start to feel part of things beside yourself. And so as yourself withers, you're expanding into a universe around you. And you can start thinking about life beyond your, beyond your own life, like a legacy. Like what do you leave behind? What effect, what residue do you leave behind? What pile of mess do you leave behind? What beauty do you leave behind? This becomes, can be a really organizing question for yourself as you move through life, especially as you get towards the end. Because if you want to, like, I think that's the key to immortality is actually seeing the seeing life outside of yourself and investing yourself in life outside yourself. And one of the kindest things any of us can do for our loved ones is to is to not leave a mess. To you know, do your darn will, do your advanced directives. <laughs> so your friends and family aren't left guessing what you'd want, um, so they can just be acting on your behalf lovingly and know that they're doing what you want them to do rather than guessing. Um, dealing with your like your stuff so that your loved one's grieving process isn't soaked up by um, endless estate sales and paperwork and all sorts of craziness. So there can be like a spiritual, almost a cleansing to cleaning, cleaning your emotional life up and your attic out so that when you die, you leave a pretty sweet, clean sorrow, not 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 layered with shellacked with guilt and regret and second doubt and recrimination, et cetera. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. It does. It does. And my husband said for a long time when we, when we first got married, he's like, when I die, I want to have a Viking funeral. I want to be pushed out into the water and burned. And I was like, you're going to have to put that one in a will because that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen if I'm in charge. Um, but uh, yeah, like we, to, if anyone that's lost someone and you have to go clean up, mm. you know, you know what that is. And, um, but it, it is, it is a sort of presence. It kind of all goes back to that presence. Um, if, if we accept that we're going to have to die one day, then um, we need to be present and clean up our mess mm -hmm. um, and, and decide, is this important? Is mm. this pile of junk important to me? You know, and then you have to, you have to kind of go down that, that path of asking yourself what is important to me what, what matters who am i yeah. and yeah yeah and it's a constant it's a question you don't ask once or twice it's you know it's a constant you're constantly trimming your sails i mean i always love this with when i work with patients and families you can often feel people being kind of by a diagnosis and the effects of treatments and stuff can kind of be pulling people down roads that they don't want to be on the sense of self goes away. Their identity is all, is all, is all screwed up and messed up. And oftentimes, you know, we love conviction. I love meeting someone who knows who they are and they're stand strong and they're that way, no matter what, there's something very charming about that. But you know what? I'm also especially moved by people who have, who have roped in a change into their makeup that they aren't static that they are affected by life. I, that's one of my new favorite words in the last year is affected. I want, like, affect means mood. To affect means to obviously to change something, to alter something, to invest yourself in something. And what an honor it is to be affected. You know, if I'm having a conversation with you, Meredith, and I'm affected by that, I mean, what a beautiful exchange that is. There's something very moving by, about being moved. And that means not being static. So as you deal with the threats to your identity that illness can, that can, can su superimpose on you, if you can find a way to dance with that and move with that and be affected, that I think is a very adaptive response and it takes you down very beautiful pathways and illness can lead you to see things that you never would have seen before if you go with it this way. Um, so I, I don't know why I went down that, launched down that pathway, but I do think there's something really, really beautiful to being changed, to being affected. Um, I wanted to yeah. say that, but now I can't remember why. Well, I mean, it's just why the human, so you know, it's the human condition when we make connections with people, when people are showing us their true selves, how they really feel and, and someone that can say, Hey, this is, this is impacting me. This is affecting me. 
Yeah. Um, that allows us to say, you know what, this is impacting me too. And here's how I feel. I mean, if you're the one dying and you give people permission to feel a certain, however they feel about it and, and yeah. because you're able to feel it's, it's just the whole, the whole connection that, that yeah. we make. Yes. And an exchange, like we're, there's, exchange. we're, we're yeah. affecting each other. Life is changing because we're changing and vice versa, you know, and that's such a dynamic thing. And it also begs, it makes the point that, yeah, we're one person, you or I is just one person, right? You could say we're just a drop in the in the ocean, blah, blah, blah. But you know, it wouldn't be the same ocean without your little drop. There's something right. really right-sizing about this. Like, yes, I'm teeny and I'm potent. Yes, I'm, you know, <laughs> yes, yes, I'm itty bitty, but the world would be different without me. We're like and vanilla it, extract. Well, yeah, well, oh yeah. No, I love vanilla, by the way. That's such an exotic bean. I always laugh when people think vanilla is like bland. But anyway, um, yeah, there's something about being in the flow of life. And I guess that's another point I wanted to kind of make here is if you like have these conversations, Meredith, and you roll around with this in a daily way, you know, routinely, those changes that we're describing are also little deaths, you know, like you can practice your dying a little bit, like your identity shifts, like I felt one way last week, but that way died in a way. Now I feel this way. And you if you can kind of roll with change in a way you're rolling with death, you're, you are practicing loss all the time, you're trimming your sails all the time, and you're seeing loss and gain in the same equation all day, every day. You walk down the street, you see death happening by the bugs you step on or the leaf you see falling from the tree or whatever it is. It's just all around you and in you. And it doesn't feel like this exotic, foreign, invading force. And therefore, when it does come your time, you've really been, you've been rehearsing this in a way. Yeah, you know? yeah. So if anyone has any questions, feel free to put your little blue Zoom hand up. You can do it by going to, I think, manage participants and you can raise your hand and I'll call on you and we can, you can ask a question or feel free to type it in the chat. This is a great opportunity, you guys, so take advantage of it and practice your public speaking skills. Um, yeah. I, I think one thing that we could segue from, from this is legacy, the concept of legacy. Um, you, you know, kind of, it's like a cringe word. What is my legacy? Because I'm so important. But um, there is an idea that you know what are we going to leave and I think your book does an excellent job kind of putting legacy in perspective and then at the end of, of the chapter on it you mentioned something like no matter if you didn't write a book or you didn't write anything down or send a letter you were still here you still matter and so maybe we can talk about the concept of what we leave behind or, or legacy and what that what can we do about that in this moment yeah well, any questions? I'm yeah. You just tell me when there's a question. I'll, yeah, um, I will. I will. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think oh, that's wait, a wait. There's a question. Okay. <laughs> Shall we talk? Let's take a question. Why not? All right. Um, Jay Bennett, you are unmuted. I think. Good morning, and thank you so much for your time. My question goes back to what you, Meredith, you had said. You know, when I get older, I'm going to smoke again, or, or that patient did. And I'm thinking about something happening with my grandfather, who's in assisted living now. And my mother and her sister are arguing about the types of food he should eat and how many pieces of sausage he should have for breakfast. And is there a tactful way to address that, I guess? Because I kind of wanted to say, you know, when your dog gets old, you let him eat all the cheeseburgers he wants. Mm -hmm. How can I say that in a more tactful and loving way? And I'm sorry, did you say this was your father or your grandfather? Uh, it's my grandfather, and so it's my mother and her sister that are arguing about it. And you know, I understand where they're coming from. They want to, one of them wants to hold on as long as possible, and the others kind of has my mindset. But I'm well, just looking just, for a loving way to say that. Well, you just named something really, really important, which is oftentimes what you'll see in families around someone who's doing the dying is you know family dynamics come out here and what you might be experiencing in your mother and her sister is their own grief. So you, you sort of intimated as much. It's, I think it's an important lens so that you know how to hear each other well, because sometimes it can get pretty intense around the bedside and families can sometimes start get at each other rather than come together. And I guess I just named that is you, grief will come out in all sorts of ways. So maybe it's, it's just, it's, you're so wise to have compassion for your mother and her sister as they deal with the, the impending death of their father. Um, rather than chasing their argument around, just seeing it as their 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 suffering. 
So I don't know if that's even true in this case, but I just need it as a generic comment to, so that so we know how to read the signals at the bedside and not get too swept up. Um, so anyway, that's one point. The second point would be, you know, is your grandfather able, is he communicative at this point? Oh yes, very much so. And he, I think he just stops talking because the two of them are talking so much mm. that he just sort of sits back and accepts mm -hmm. whoever wins that argument. In a loving way? And, and he, lo that... he loves, absolutely. Oh yeah, he loves them both very much. He, he still calls all of us Plunkin. Um, Sweet. So it, it, yeah, I mean, everybody's coming from a loving place. It just, yeah. I think right. I, my motivation is probably trying to ease that tension. Yeah. Well, so ideally, so if your grandfather, you know, ideally it, it gets back to what Meredith brought up, the sort of goals of care. And if, if the patient, if your grandfather is able to say, hey guys, you know what? I've been thinking about this. And these are my final days. Who knows how long I have? But, you know, as I look at this is my life now and, and I realize here's what's important to me. You know what? When it comes down to it, I'd really just love to watch the 49ers or the Cubs or whatever and eat as much sausage as I want, you know, or whatever it is. I mean, you know, it, ideally it would be coming from your grandfather because he's the boss here. And if he says, here's what's important to me and now, and here's what's not so important to me now, then you've got your marching orders and then everyone can show their devotion by honoring his wishes. So ideally he's the one making, making these kinds of statements um, and giving us direction. Do you think that's a possible, could you imagine a conversation where with enough questioning, he might answer it and say, well, gosh, now that you asked me what's so important to me now, Here's, here's my answer. Would, would he answer that question? Absolutely. Now that you say that, it would be really easy just to grab his hand and say, Grandpa, what do you want? Yeah. I, don't, I think he just hasn't been asked. So I, I bet he would answer that question. That's a great, great suggestion. Well, and it may sometimes, and, and sometimes it really is kind of that easy. It's amazing just simply just asking. And, and I'll just say one more thing. You know, in that conversation, it can be very helpful to contextualize it. So... Hey, Grandpa, what's important to you? That you may begin an answer, but you say, you know, if there's a way to be talking about his health, and if the doctor has sort of let him know, if there's a prognosis moment or if there's a treatment decision moment, you know, those can be really poignant times to sort of circle the wagon, sit down, and have a big conversation. Say, here's a couple decisions now. We got to think these things through, Grandpa. How do you want to approach this? What's important now? How do you want to make this decision? So, in other words, contextualizing the conversation can be very helpful and lead just very naturally uh, into the answers that I think you're looking for. Um, but it sounds like you guys will find your way. Is there anything more you want to talk out about that situation, though? No, that, thank you. That was, that was fantastic recommendations. I really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Yeah, my awesome. best to your family. Awesome. Okay, um, Ashley, I'm going to unmute you. Go ahead. Maybe I should actually unmute you. Why is it not working? All right, mm. hold on. Let me try Lorraine, see if I can unmute you. Okay, Lorraine, I think you're unmuted. I am. Okay. I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, when my father passed, I had a very powerful moment where both of us acknowledged that he was dying um, rather than uh, ignoring that. Um, could you comment on that? Important to the importance of acknowledging the fact that someone is dying to them. Mm. Well, Lorraine, yeah, thank you. And did I did did you say that some that 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 was acknowledged? Is that how it played out, or was it was his death not acknowledged? Was there sort of a charade around? Actively acknowledge that with with my father. Yeah, it was acknowledged. You're it kind of was. breaking up, Lorraine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's really, really generally important. So let me say a few things here, Lorraine. And, and if, I, if, I, if I say anything that doesn't quite fit your situation, forgive me, but I'm just going to speak in sort of generalities. So um, there's a great book called The Death of Ivan Illich. And I can't remember the author's name right now. Uh, uh, but anyway, it's about sometimes the pain... If, you know, some of us, I think for many of us, maybe all of us at some point, we just want to be seen, you know, the phrase bearing witness, 
and to be seen for all that we are, even if we're falling apart, even if we're dying or whatever it is, just to be seen in truth. Um, that's a very powerful feeling to be seen and not judged to, to is, is, is powerful. And sometimes when we're trying to protect the dying person or the sick person, we may watch what we say or hush tones or speak in half truths. Um, that, that can end up hurting the person who's actually doing the dying because they know something's up. Most people I've ever worked with in their gut, even if they've never been told their diagnosis, somewhere inside of them knows that they're, that they're dying very often. Leo Tolstoy, thank you, Monica. I see the comment on the bottom. Yes, it's a Tolstoy book, The Death of Ivan Illich. But back to Lorraine's question or the point here is it can be a powerfully, it can be a powerful source of despair when you know there's a truth you're sitting in some truth and the people you love around you are ignoring that truth. Like you're not sharing reality and that can feel it's, it's its own sense of tension and its own sense of pain. So for the most part, um, most of us, you're, we're doing each other an honor and a service by acknowledging the full reality that we're dealing with. Now, that can be hard to do. There are ways to do that. But I also need a caveat here, Lorraine, and for everybody else. There are cultural and personal overlays here. So in some cultures, the person who is doing the dying, they're not told that they're dying. And for ceremonial reasons and symbolic reasons. And that's just, that is the cultural tradition. And that may be, so in other words, that sort of, um, that blindness may be desired, may be culturally appropriate. So that's something to acknowledge here. There is no right or wrong way. So when I meet families that are suggesting, don't tell mom or dad that he or she is dying, you know, what I, the way to handle that as an, as an American physician with our ethos around autonomy is to say, okay, well, I'm not going to foist that diagnosis on your loved one, on your mom, or your dad, but I am going to ask them what they want to know. So if I say, hey, Mrs. Jones, you know, this is complicated, what's going on with you right now. Do you want me, would it be helpful for me to try to talk to you about all that's happening with your life and your body right now? Or would you just as soon I talked with your family? And I've given the patient the, the power to tell me what they need. So if they say, no, doc, I want to know everything. Then it's my job to bring the family together and broker a conversation around the truth. But very is often- Is it your they don't experience want, that they usually want to know, the patient? Um, most often, my experience is most often is they know, and wow. most often they want the family and people around them to share in that reality, so they're not propping up some charade. Right, right. But it's not always the case. It is usually yeah. the case. Yeah. So sorry, I rambled a little bit, but Lorraine, I no. hope that responded to your point a little bit. Yeah, that that was great, and it, you made me think of something. Um, the the new movie with newish movie Fair with Tom well. Hanks. Oh. No, what yeah, was that? Yeah, the, the Tom Hanks, The Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood about Mr. Rogers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know if you've seen it, but there's a scene yeah. where one of the, oh, it's so good, where um, one of the, the people are dying and Mr. Rogers, the Tom Hanks character, goes over and whispers to him. And there's a, like a nodding and acknowledgement. And then the, the dying man's son says, what did you say to him? And um, Mr. Rogers says, I asked him to pray for me because no one is closer to God than a man going through that. And it was just this moment where he acknowledged this man is dying. And, he, you know, it, it's just, it, and it made you feel like, oh my gosh, um, no one does that. There's no one does respect. that, but it was, yes, yeah. a respect. Like we see yeah. you, we see you and what you're going yeah. through and we're here, we're here for, yeah, you're right. We're not okay. running away. We're not pretending it's something else. We're yeah. sticking even though we don't understand it, that is so much honor and respect and love and that it's hard, but it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ashley, I'm going to try and unmute you one more time. And if not, maybe you could type your question. Yeah. For some reason. Oh, wait, there we go. Yay. Okay. So Sweet. you kind of answered my first part of my question already. So I'm an only child. Um, growing up, death was not something we talked about at all. Uh, my parents were older and then my dad suddenly passed away six years ago. Um, my mom lost her mind and I was the one that like handled everything. They had nothing set up. They had no wills, anything like that. So now every time I try and talk to my mom about it, like, Hey, let's not do this again. When something happens to you, ultimately she gets really closed off. Doesn't want to talk about it. I've tried being pushy. I've tried just kind of dropping it into conversations. It never works. 
So, I mean, part of it was about like, how do you handle something like that? And then on the other side, like I have two small children that are two and four and I don't want them to be in the same position down the road. And I feel like at two and four, obviously it's not a conversation you sit down and have with them, but like, how do you suggest making it so that conversation is easier down the road? If that makes sense. With the kids or with your mom or both? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So let's see. So mom, you know, hard to know. Obviously I don't know your mom and there could yeah. be so many things going on here. It may be that some, some folks, accept it that it's almost almost like a tradition that 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 the way we show that we family show our love to each other is by by get, wading into a hard confused place and like it may be maybe i'm not suggesting this is a situation with your mom but sometimes it's sort of like that pattern plays itself out the dying person is not talking about it the family has to do a lot of gymnastics around that person to try to figure that out and in some for some families that is a sort of a version of love that is passed on that that is that is the tradition in a way and family members can show their love by just wading into the confusion and being lost together i'm not saying that that's what she's doing or that's a great idea but i get the feeling sometimes that that is almost what feels like a an un, a, a thought, an unthinking position oftentimes is a thinking position. And that's one point. Another point is, you know, your mom may very often people take a little bite at a time with this. You know, they don't go right to an accepting place. You see, your efforts to try to talk with her about it probably are landing somewhere. And over time, they may have their impact. It may be the hundredth time that you say, hey, mom, you know, have you thought about X, Y, or Z? And one day she might just say, all of a sudden have a, uh, an answer waiting for you. Then you might just be completely shocked. Why on the hundredth time that I asked, did you finally answer the question? Sometimes it's just, you just need to chip away. Um, so I would just continue to, to bring it up in this loving, thoughtful way. And also for your own sense of sanity that you don't overly personalize her response. So she may not be able to go there just yet. And it doesn't have anything to do with her not hearing you or not loving you, et cetera. So offering it up, mom, I'd love to talk about this if you're ready. If not, we'll keep on going. You know, someday she might be ready. Maybe, maybe. Then another point here is very often communication is indirect. So she may not sit down and say, honey, here's what's important to me, X, Y, and Z. When it's my time, I want you to do blah, blah, blah. She may not be that directive, but maybe she'll let lob in. Maybe you can talk to her about what she loves about life. And you know, if we talk about what you love about life, mom, that that's an indirect way of saying what they're afraid to lose or what they're sad, what they're, what they're, what the sadness that will be in the counterpoint. So if she says, gosh, I just love being with family. I just love being at home. That's a little bit of an advanced directive. So that means that when it comes time, maybe she wants to be at home. Maybe that means hospice, not the ICU and things like that. So sometimes you can have an indirect version of this conversation through talking about what she loves. That gives you a sense of how to make decisions on her behalf going forward because you'll know what's important to her. So those are some generic kind of thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, and then lastly, the kids, you know, and it may be sometimes of a certain generation, older folks I've seen who are just not, they're never going to talk about their own wishes. They see it as self-absorbed. You know, it's almost like they see that as selfish. Like, they, but the second you say, hey, mom, you'll be doing the grandkids such a favor if you, you know, if you let us know what's important to you or whatever it is, if you make it clear to mom that she's doing your, you and your grandkids uh, and your kids a favor, then all of a sudden things can change. Sometimes people won't do it for themselves, but if they know preparing for their end is a kindness to the family, they'll do it in a hot second. So those are some generic thoughts. Um, then sorry for the kids. You know, kids are amazing. They're so resilient as a rule. Death is not so foreign to kids as we, I think we imagine. Um, so very often with kids, you just let, it depends where they are in their developmental arc, but as a rule, you follow their lead. If they're asking questions and showing curiosity, then you go with it. You know, if you're trying to take them into a hospital or someone's bedside and they're actively repulsed and not wanting to go, then, you know, don't force them. But you can usually read kids in real time and follow their lead. They'll tell you what they're ready for. And I would say in general, we underestimate kids' ability to deal with yeah. death. 
Yeah, I'll I'll add to that too. My um my grandfather passed away last year, and we my son who's twelve, we were at the viewing, and he said, "I really want to." to Poppy was my grandfather. He's like, "I really want to touch him," and I was like, "Well, let's go touch him." And despite my great growth and and death and 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 being better with it, I'm still not real cool on 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 touching the mm-hmm. dead. And but I thought, well, my son's okay with this, and he wants to go touch Papu, so you know, and it's so interesting how when you're with a child, you grow. I mean, you just grow. And so we didn't, we went and we held his papu's hand and he said, he feels like our lizard. And I said, Mm -hmm. yes, he, he sort of does. And, um, it was this, you know, this moment, but taking a child's lead is, is, is a really easy way to, to kind of grow yourself. I noticed too. Um, Beth, um, I'm going to unmute you. Okay. You're good. Hi, I just wanted to say thank you. I'm, I'm looking at the read back here. Yes, we do suck at death and dying in the United States for sure. But I have to say that this conversation has given me great comfort. Um, and I did listen to your TED talk um, prior to the call this morning. My mom passed in November. So thank you. You've given me comfort that I gave her a beautiful death. So sorry for the moment. Oh. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so beautiful to hear that. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Beth, you're such a dear, she is such a dear person. Beth. Oh, I'm just like, we're all going to cry, but I'm no, so No, but she was in, um, she had Alzheimer's and she suffered a fall um, last May and it was kind of a slippery slope. And it was interesting when you were talking to the other participants about communication and she gave us a lot of signals. And it was the other thing that I found interesting about this is I felt like I was the person that didn't want my mom to know that she was dying. And my sister was a little more forthright in that communication with her. And so my mom was a runner. And towards the end of the end of the end, I said to her, I said, mom, this is your final finish line. And we will be there with you if you want us to be. And if you don't, we will honor that too. Hmm. And she waited. She was, there was a period of time where she was with a hospice um, volunteer. My sister and I had some things to do. And we came back. And my sis, I was holding her hand. My sister was at her head. My niece was in the room. The hospice volunteer was there. Her favorite nurse was there. And we had some really lovely music going. And she, you know, sprinted across that finish line with a whole bunch of um, love around her. And I really loved in your TED Talk, in your hospice, that you sprinkle flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really beautiful. Um, after she passed, we opened the window to kind of let her spirit go. So. I just want to say thank you. This is a really sticky kind of sticky topic for a lot of people. And I really look forward to reading your book. So thank you for taking the time today. Oh, Beth, thank you for sharing that story. That is so beautiful. Uh, I mean, and oh, hey, tears are totally welcome. I mean, God, I love tears. They're so powerful and useful. I mean, so let them, let them fly, you know, and that's, and what a way to honor your mama. What I mean, it's just so beautiful. I mean, so thank you so much for sharing it. And, and thanks for moving, making the point that that beauty is not opposed to pain, that tears are not opposed to joy. They go together, you know, and thanks for living that for us. It's so, it's just gorgeous. Thank you. What a lucky woman she was. Yeah, Beth, you're so sweet. Okay, um, Tanya, you are unmuted. Hey, everyone. Um, I just wanted to really say thank you. Um, I I really appreciate that we're we're talking about this more. Um, when I, you know how teenagers think they're they're so invincible. Um, well, when I started college uh, at the age of seventeen, there was a school shooting, and that was the first sort of um, that that was the first time that I even though I had seen grandparents pass away, it was the first time I realized I could die. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a huge game changer. Um, And ever since I've always made it very clear, um, you know, um, 
Sorry, so I totally lost my train of thought. I do it all the time. <laughs> it's okay. That's part of life too. It's losing um, our train of thought. <laughs> but yeah, I've always, uh, I've always, you know, let my family and friends know that I wish to be an organ donor. That um, I would prefer to die at home. That I don't want extensive um, last resort sort of measures taken. If my quality of life would be uh, greatly impacted. It just made me realize that even though that was a very spontaneous event, that death is a thing and it's part of life. And I do want my friends and family to know my wishes at the end. And this isn't something we talk about a lot. And uh, so I'm very grateful to be here. And uh, thank you so much for bringing more awareness to this. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you. And I, uh, you know, you make the point here. I, I wish you and I, had both had really hard reasons to make death real in our own lives, right? We had something that happened that was really, you know, regrettable um, in so many ways. But I also, I don't know that I would have, as a young person, I don't know that I would have dared to wrap my head around death as soon as I did without that experience. And I don't know about you, Tanya, it's hard to wish for a school shooting in the backdrop. But it's yeah. also, it's hard to escape that for, especially for us young folks, we, you, you know, you need a, an excuse to kind of really wake up to this. I mean, yeah, we know we all die. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this <laughs> yeah. abstraction in the back, but to really internalize it. Yeah. Someday. Yeah, yeah. But to really <laughs> internalize it and to feel it in our bones is a very powerful force in some way. I, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do with this wish because it ends up feeling a little sadistic. But I, especially when I work with young students who are going to the health professions, I, I actively want them to have an experience like you had, Tanya, or like I had, to make the abstract a little bit more real because it's such a poignant place to get to. It's a hard, hard to get to, but once you're there, it's so life affirming and so sweet and so beautiful and such a connecting force. I just, so I wish the world had, at a young age, had some, something go wrong to make them wake up in this way, but not wrong enough to hurt you. You know, it's, it's a hard yeah. wish for, but I'm just grateful that you and I both had these experiences and thanks for sharing. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I think we probably have time for, for one more quick one. Um, I'm not sure of your name. It's HP notebooks, iPad. You are unmuted. <laughs> That's me. I'm, I'm Lori Larson and I, um, I love the comment that I wanted to make was that I've had, I've had a lot of experience with death. I've lost two children and a nephew mm. and um, my mother and my father, of course, but mm -hmm. I was quite young when that happened. But, um, you know, I just wish people would be a little bit more forward about it. And, you know, you don't pass, there's no rainbow bridge, you die. Mm. And, and, you know, it's, it's actually, you know, the fact that people can't talk about it actually makes it harder because you, you, you can't, you know, they want, they don't know what to say. So they say the wrong thing and, and they're trying, you know, I get that, mm -hmm. but, but people don't talk about it enough to know how to talk about it in a comforting, helpful way. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that's kind of frustrating. And, uh, and, you know, I, I also feel like one of, the, one of the things that you said, this is just a, one quick little comment. I, I think that as a doctor, you, or doctors in general, um, they, they owe the patient the honesty to help them deal with their death and not necessarily to defer to their family's wishes. Mm -hmm. Because if their family doesn't want them to know about it, that's too bad. That's mm -hmm. their illness and their body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so much denial out there. I mean, so many people are so uncomfortable with this. They don't want to help mom and dad die. They don't want to deal with mom and dad dying. So they just say, well, we'll just not talk about it. Mm -hmm. A person, like you said, a person knows exactly what's going on with their body, usually. Mm -hmm. And I just, I hope that, I mean, I'm so glad about this conversation because it's just one conversation, but it's one that we need to have. Mm -hmm. And I hope people can all take it to their other conversations that they have in their life and, and, yeah. and help, help others understand that it's something that you can just talk about. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, Lord, <laughs> thank you. 
No, that's so beautiful. Thank you. I mean, it's a perfect sort of summary comment, I think, to our conversation. And, and look, we are having this conversation. They are happening. And denial is a very real thing out there. It's a powerful thing, too. But there are also some counterpoints. Meredith, you hosting this conversation, you all participating in it. And you're right, Laurie, we can all go out in the world and do a little differently and be part of this change. And I think the basic change that you're pointing to, and we're all pointing to one way or another, this is part of life. This is not the antithesis of life. This is not against life. This is life. And so therefore, let's deal with it together and let's not make it harder than it needs to be. Then I think, you know, this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, we're, this is a culture change. We as patients, as the public, pushing this conversation and pushing our doctors to do a little differently. And medical education needs to, needs to shift itself too to be prepared to have these conversations. So we're not uh, kicking the can down the road. So anyway, Laurie, amen, I'm with you all the way. And I think this, this very conversation is, is a counterpoint to the denial that we're all aware of too. It's happening. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so very much. Everyone, um, Dr. Miller's book is A Beginner's Guide to the End. It is fantastic. I've read it. It's, it's wonderful. Um, a way we can continue this conversation is once, we post, once I post up this podcast and the YouTube video, share it. This is how we get conversations going. I mean, there's a reason Dr. Miller's TED Talk has 10 million views. Like, this is how things get talked about and seen. So thank you all for being here. And yeah. Dr. Miller, thank you for your work and, and everything That's you do. A pleasure. Thank you, guys. Such a pleasure meeting you all. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.